This episode of The Radical Therapist is brought to you by Hoff Consulting Group, a leading advisory firm specializing in workplace relational health and organizational success. We are committed to helping businesses cultivate a harmonious work environment through effective conflict resolution, conflict coaching, mental health programming, and executive coaching. Hoff Consulting Group is proud to have successfully supported numerous organizations across diverse industries in achieving their workplace relational health goals. We bring a client-centric approach to every engagement, ensuring that our solutions align with your unique needs, culture, and objectives. If you would like to explore how Hoff Consulting Group can support your organization in cultivating a positive work environment and drive innovation, please visit our website at hoffconsultinggroup.com and schedule an introductory call. And now it's time for the Radical Therapist Podcast. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We are now at episode 113, and I'm very excited. We have Sherry Dunn here, who wrote an amazing uh, article on Medium, and I'm going to point you all to it. And it should be, the link will be in the in the uh, show notes. But it's uh, an article titled, The War on Woke is a War on Empathy and it's working, and we're going to talk about this war on woke that you can see everywhere, and it's a wonderful episode, and we're going to talk about what it really means, and also um, what we can do, and how we can kind of get the narrative back and push back against uh, the rhetoric that's uh, uh, very predominant out there right now. So, uh, very excited about that. Before we get to Sherry, just a quick announcement, just a quick reminder, please rate and review the show if you could on whatever place you're listening or iTunes, that kind of thing. That's how we get out in front of people. That's how we get these important, like today's episode, these important messages out in front of people. So if you could uh, rate or review the show wherever you're listening, it would be very much appreciated. And of course, always follow us on the social medias. Uh, we're at Instagram at The Radical Therapist, and on Facebook, we have a Facebook page at The Radical Therapist. Please join us there uh, for all the latest updates. Okay, now let's get to our guest. Sherry Dunn is the CEO and principal of ItBomb LLC, a consulting firm that specializes in institutional and organizational coaching around equity, leadership, change management, women in leadership, and workforce development. ImpBomb consults with companies as diverse as Fortune 500s, state agencies, and medium to small-sized businesses. Sherry is a former nonprofit CEO, attorney, journalist, and foundation funder. Sherry was the co-VP of Power of Attorney Foundation, a sub-grantee of the former Atlantic Philanthropies. I think I said that right. She's been quoted in the Chronicle of Philanthropy. I'm having a tough one with that today. Sorry. Philanthropy, the nonprofit quarterly, and more. She is also an adjunct at the University of Portland in the Pamplin School of Business and serves on the Oregon Talent and Workforce Development Board. Her approach is outside the traditional human resources paradigm and is meant to help institutions with a systemic redesign to bring workplace equity. Sherry has been awarded Executive of the Year and one of the Women of Influence by the Portland Business Journal, amongst many other awards and honors. So without further ado, let's meet Sherry. Hi, Sherry. Welcome to the Radical Therapist Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great you're here, and I appreciate you making the time. And um, you recently wrote an article titled "The War on Woke is a War on Empathy," and it 
I don't remember where I found it, but I ca it caught my attention, and I really appreciated your uh, take, and I wanted to um, know more because I just have been struck by mm -hmm. this kind of war on woke. I've had two recent experiences. Um, one, I was at an art show of all places with this like uh, group of uh, very diverse photographers, and and I was enjoying the art, and this older woman walked by and looked at me and said, "This is all woke, <laughs> this stuff." And then I. And then I was talking to another colleague about um, their particular agency, and I think from the board there was some idea that um, um, that their clinical programming was in danger of becoming woke. And yeah, and so it's just a theme that, and I and it makes no sense to me. And so I just wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And so when you read this article, I was like, oh, I have to talk to Sherry because this would be great for me and for <laughs> I know my listeners. So so thank you for making the time. And I, I'm wondering if we could just start by, you know, this woke has become mm -hmm. such a loaded word. And I'm wondering if you can maybe define woke for us and its history. Yeah. Well, first thing I will say, the article I publish on Medium. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the full title, I think, is The War on Woke is a War on Empathy and it's working. And it's working, sorry. Yeah. So that, that's the key because this war on woke as a stand-in for empathetic understanding is working really, really well, which is um, to de-emphasize connection and empathetic understanding with people's issues and problems and make a space where everyone feels included. That's really you know, what woke has been about. I mean, woke's history goes, you know, I don't know how far it goes back. I mean, well, here, let's do, like I did an article, plain language definition, right? There is to be asleep and there is to be awake, right? right? That, that's right. So we start there and you have to say to yourself, who is vested in us being asleep? And what was the problem with being awake? Because to be awake is to be alert, to be engaged in what is happening around you. To be asleep is not. So just right on the plain language definition, who is anti-awake? Right. That's real sinister. Let's get like a sinister <laughs> vibe to it. I'm anti you being Completely. awake, her yeah. if you sleep. But then from a kind of cultural ling linguistic perspective, uh, black culture, you know, uses things like, you know, you know, stay woke or you need to be awake or be be woke. And these things actually are much older than recent times. I think they probably go back to the 60s, if not the 30s, maybe. But being alert and being engaged and knowing what was what. And so that that piece of language. Um, and then I recently read somebody saying it's got this religious definition about awakening to and understanding. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things there. But what, what people who are anti-woke are using it for is empathetic understanding of difference. Mm -hmm. I don't like empathetic understanding of difference. It's upsetting to me. Um, or and or they use it as a stand in for black, Hispanic, LGBTQ, anything they don't like right. is woke. And so it's an easy way to say I'm anti-black without saying it, right. just I'm anti-woke right. or I'm anti-LGBTQIA because I, I'm anti-woke. Hmm. And the alarming speed at which this anti-awakening has been adopted uh, by corporate, by individuals, tells you the power of rhetoric mm -hmm. and how skillful some people are in their use of, of it. Yeah, wonderful. 
Uh, in your article, you start with the idea that empathy alone will not save us, but the lack of empathy will doom us. I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could say more about that. Yeah, because I don't want to be, you know, a Pollyanna. I don't want to be mm -hmm. naive. Like empathy is not the only thing we need, right? Mm -hmm. um, you can have empathetic understanding and then still not do anything, right? But empathy is distinguished from sympathy, right? I think people know that. Sympathetic understanding is, is, is objective, generally like, oh, I feel bad for that. But empathy is like, oh, I feel that. And when you feel that, you are more inclined to act. You are more inclined to step in. And I think there is a, a real knowledge about that. And if you can break that link, then you can start to do things to people and people are going to be less inclined to interact. And so... You know, what I mean by that is I don't want to sim simplify the things that need to be done around social justice, racial justice, economic justice to just empathy. Oh, I just have empathy. Mm -hmm. That's enough. The action is required. But one key point is that a lack of empathy means it's not going to happen. So the rest of the story and in the article, I talk about empathy being a part of the brew you know, like a roux that you make uh, in New Orleans style cooking and other types of cooking, you make a roux, a base. Well, it's an important base ingredient. And if it isn't there, the, the odds that activity, motion, and interruption are going to happen are severely reduced. Mm -hmm. And when we look at atrocities across uh, humanity, the lead up to most great atrocities was a de-emphasizing de empathetic understanding of the target of that atrocity. And so it's, uh, it's you know, without it, we're in trouble. Right. Um, it's not the only thing that will save us, but without it, we are perhaps doomed. Like right. that, that, you know, without that, people, people go along. They go along with some of the worst things, you know, the world mm -hmm. has ever seen because we, but the lead up included a removal, a de-emphasis, a disconnection of empathetic understanding. Yeah, right. Uh, you also take on conservative media and politicians' accusations of woke being indoctrination, and I'm hearing a lot of that lately. So I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Yeah, I mean, there's this notion that the reason there was such a universal response to the murder of George Floyd was that a generation of people have been indoctrinated into woke culture. So what, what does that stand in? And basically what they're saying is that a generation of white people have been led to have empathetic feelings for black people in their circumstances. Mm -hmm. And that is terrible. I mean, that's, that's literally what they're saying. And, and this empathetic understanding has corrupted their children and a generation of people. And they wanna cut that off and not have people feel and understand into other people's experience such that they would protest, such, you know, I'm in Portland, Oregon, such that, you know, thousands would lay down on a bridge is so offensive. Um, and I actually saw this, this clip on LinkedIn the other day and, you know, how they go out and interview people and they have them say just wacky things or people say wacky things. They don't know they're saying wacky things. And one lady says, yeah, you know, in my school, they're trying to teach my kids empathy. And that's something you should teach at the home. What? You know, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. teaching little kids to be empathetic to each other is now offensive. Um, social emotional learning yeah. is now offensive. They're literally starting with kindergartners to, to indoctrinate them into hate culture and to have kindergartners not 
be empathetically, you know, if somebody has two dads, if your family doesn't believe in that, fine. But to go the next step to ostracize, punish, and harass them is that lack of empathy. And is that what you're saying you want kindergartners to do to each other? I'm just like, so, I mean, but essentially, yes. And so this is why uh, primary schools and colleges are targets, because there is this belief that because they've learned about women's history, because they've learned about Black history, because they've learned about gay rights history, because they've learned these things, they're now damaged because they feel for other people. And that that damage of feeling must be undone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, and thank you for that. Um, you also, in the in your writing, you believe, I, I, as I understand it, uh, you believe there's utility to guilt and shame, and I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I know Brene Brown and others talked about guilt and people, you know, here's the thing, and I had somebody, I was doing consulting, somebody said this to me, my kids were shamed in school, and they came home and asked if we had ever, our family had ever had slaves, and I was offended. I'm so, I'm, the whole series of events is so confusing me. First of all, a country without shame and a country without empathy is a dangerous place to live, right? Mm -hmm. Because that means that people will do horrific things without care or concern, or without any shame. And who wants to live in a shame-free society? First of all, Shame is a natural human emotion, as you know, mm -hmm. and as, you know, therapists and psychologists know it's, it's a natural human emotion. The, the, what I try to tell people, there's a difference between feeling shamed and being shamed. Mm -hmm. And we need, and we as a society can't figure out where that line is. You know, if I say to you, you're a horrible person because you're white. And if you weren't white and so terrible and dumb, that's shaming you. But if I learn about something bad, and I feel bad about it, and I feel shame about it, it's going to spur me to want to, in the future, make sure either I don't do it personally, or the society I live in doesn't do it, right? Mm -hmm. So shame and guilt have value. But empathy is not guilt. It's not shame. And, and the two get uh, conflated in this, this desire to pull back any kind of emotional connection between people. And ironically, we've been doing this for 400 years. You know, I, I take a small digression. Um, there, I'm writing a book right now about race in the workplace called Competency Checking for HarperCollins that hopefully will be out at the end of 2024, early 2025. Um, but in the book, I talk about uh, uh, Bacon's Rebellion, which is a rebellion in 1676 in Virginia. And a group of white uh, uh, folks, uh, Nathaniel Bacon, um, it, it's a long story and it's a, he's, he's not a good guy. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he brings together a multiracial group of people. They, they burn down Jamestown, Virginia. They're very successful. And the concern from the landowners after that was, hey, we got this multiracial group of people. This is really a problem. We need to separate that. How do we separate that? And, um, and this is when our earliest uh, definitions of black and white come into being, right? Because previous to this time and a little earlier, there were no white people. There were British, Protestants, Catholics, um, Baker, whatever your job. People didn't call themselves white and um, not as a race. But the, the foundations of race start to come up to separate us. So we can't have that connection, that empathetic understanding. So once again, these ideas of guilt and shame and empathy are being dis, dislodged 
right? Mm -hmm. So we can't have that empathetic understanding. There's this constant push against keeping people across differences from actually getting over the curtain or over the wall to see that the connections are the same. And guilt and shame are valuable parts. You know, in my life, I've done things I'm guilty of and I'm ashamed of, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise I think I'd be a sociopath, you know? And so do we want a sociopathic country, you know? Or uh, you know, what, what, what are we saying? It, feeling something, feeling something is, seems to be the problem. If my children go to school and feel anything about the fact that the United States enslaved black people, discriminated against women, uh, and that uh, LGBTQI people are human beings, if they feel anything about that, that's making them feel bad and we must stop it. Yeah, right. I don't understand that now, you know? And so I do distinguish between being shamed and feeling shame and guilt because feeling shame and guilt is a natural human emotion designed to spur us to reflect on what we've done and hopefully not do it again because we don't like that feeling. It's just part of the human condition, you know? And so this idea that you're gonna, and what's fascinating to me is in these conversations, especially around education, no one ever considers what black children, what LGBTQI children, what children who have different families feel, the guilt and shame, or the not even guilt and shame, the bullying and terror they felt right. in school and education the entire time. Like there are no laws against that, but white children or straight children or anybody's families around religion feeling anything for somebody that we have to stop. That's yeah. weird. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, you know, I want to say, as somebody who practices Buddhism, I, you know, the Buddha actually said that shame is a bright light, right? And um, yeah, so. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, but then the, this goes back to darkness, right? Mm -hmm. Sleep. There are people who want us to go back to sleep, yeah. to extinguish light. Yeah. And that's exactly what this alternative vision is. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, you write that the cardinal sin of wokeness is that those who until very recently have been excluded from participating in the evolution of how language refers to them, asserting their right to name themselves. I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Yeah, that was in response to an article. I think it was in the Atlantic mm -hmm. um, where this guy wrote and he was just like, you know, it's like to me, the whole vibe was get off my lawn, kids, curmudgeon. <laughs> complaining about, you know, they, them and, and DEI language. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is just ridiculous. Every day they're changing language and this isn't how language evolved. The language evolved slowly with an agreed upon principles and community. And I'm like, what are you even talking about? First of all, that is not how generally language has evolved. And if that's the case, then for the majority and until let's say the 1960 civil rights legislation, black people were totally excluded from participation then in the evolution of language. Women for most of uh, the time were excluded. So what society, what group naturally developed language? You know, And then we've already done wholesale change of language. We just don't think of it that way. I live in Oregon again, and you know, Mount Hood is actually named Wais. It's a uh, a name, a Native American name. We just went around changing the names of mountains, rivers, streams, cities, towns. I mean, I'm totally confused. And I don't think anybody agreed on that. <laughs> As a society, we have a tendency to get shocked and offended when those who shouldn't, there's this feeling like they shouldn't be dictating, but who is dictating? Because that then means you do have a sense that somebody dictates. 
the idea that language developed organically and over time is in one sense true, but in an exclusive um, environment with only a certain group of people having any say over it, okay? And then on the flip side, there are huge elements that developed, you know, overnight, literally overnight, you name renaming things that happened too. And the biggest change of language was the creation of the terms black and white as races that was made up, literally made up out of whole cloth. So it's rich to say that people wanting to be they, them, or uh, the, the kind of tweaking and evolutionary tweaking that continues to happen is somehow offensive and outrageous when you outrageously defined human beings based on the color of their skin and created an entire industry of made uh, based on made up words. Yeah. So, you know, I find it not credible. <laughs> right. Um, thank you. In your article, you detail how woke, what gets called woke policies have had and continue to have a transformative impact on those for whom the systems was not originally designated to accommodate, including conservatives who now oppose these policies. And I wonder if you could say more about that. Yeah, that is the the craziest, wildest thing about all this, right? Is that um, if you really break it down and look at you know some of the people, well, first of all, all of us have benefited from quote unquote woke policies, right? Um, and it's because we don't know that, because we're not taught that, See, there's another way we could teach the story that would make us feel included, right? In other words, civil rights legislation didn't just help Black people, it helped white women tremendously, right? But you, you have a cadre of super conservative white women who are anti-affirmative action, anti-choice, uh, anti-all these things, and yet they benefited from all these things. Like without these things, they would not be in the positions they are in. There's this peculiar irony there. And, you know, white men, I have a lot of white men say, well, none of these things help me. Is that true? Because first of all, age discrimination is going to happen to you. So it gives you tools to fight that. Uh, men's ability to participate in the emotional lives of their children and physical lives of their children was transformed by the women's movement. Um, and some people, oh, it made men less manly. Did it? It gave men the opportunity to make choices, choices that a rigid patriarchal white male system did not allow it opened the door for the fact that, hey, not everybody's straight and running around pretending and getting married and pretending to be straight, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s is destructive to everybody, right? And in particular, you know, honing in on people like um, uh, Nikki Haley, right? Who is a woman of South Asian descent, who's barely talks about race and her own story is totally informed by it. And the reaction to, uh, the fight for civil rights, right? Her family immigrates to the United States after these, I believe it is the 65 Immigration and Naturalization Act that allowed more South Asians into the United States, right? Without that, she doesn't even get here. Then her father, the first job he gets is at an all black institution, HBCU, historically black college, because the United States refused to educate black people. That's not made up, you know? And so there you go. Or that you have um, Greg Abbott, uh, who is, many people don't even really know this, who is, is um, lives with a disability, mm -hmm. uses a wheelchair, has since I think his late 20s or early 30s after an accident, a, a tree branch fell on him, just this really crazy accident. And he is, you know, so hateful of woke policies, but woke po when, when he was born, which was in the 50s, if he had the very same accident and was his age, 
he would never have been the governor. And his, his opportunities, the way people talked about him, spoke about him, would have been vastly different than what he accounted in the 80s and 90s, right, as a result of the work of disability advocates. Mm -hmm. And then he also benefited from tort litigation, where he got a major settlement for that accident. And a lot of people don't know this, that pays him six figures for his lifetime. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, but he, re, he re, re, quote, reformed in Texas, um, your ability to sue for these issues that has actually limited everyday people who cannot get the benefits he's received. Mm -hmm. Or my favorite is Ron DeSantis, whose family <laughs> is, you know, origin story is Southern Italians, um, who faced extreme race-based discrimination in the United States. That's exactly what it was, because they were seen as suspect racially mixed people. And this you can find in the New York Times, you can read it in articles, you can see the whole layout and, you know, up to and including lynchings, right? But who benefited from the bestowing of the idea of whiteness. So they benefited from that because they're trying to get into that. And who also benefited from civil rights legislation around housing discrimination, employment discrimination. Because a lot of people don't know, I used to be a practicing lawyer, law firms were segregated by religion up until the 70s. So Catholic law firms were, they're Catholic law firms. Protestant, you didn't work at a Protestant law firm if you were Jewish, and you certainly didn't work there if you were Italian, right? And when we look at little Italy's around the country, we're like, oh, this cute little place to visit. These were intentional ghettos that really only opened up a bit post-World War II, but they actually then transitioned into suburban ghettos, in a sense, the suburban areas where people still went by ethnicity, and then post-civil rights, we see the whole landscape open up and people really blend fully into society. If we told that story, we would each see our part in it and we would each see the value and we would each see our obligation and connection to each other. But we tell a different story that pits us against each other. And um, so, and, 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 you know, and really in the case of Ron DeSantis, you have a situation where in order to join this white class, a lot of people early who are early ethnically excluded are like whiter than the Protestants. <laughs> they're more racist, more angry, more like they got to prove their bona fides more than anybody mm -hmm. to be a part of this group, as opposed to saying, wait a minute, look at all these values and, and the value that has been bestowed by moving these conversations forward and moving legislation forward. And so it's a, it's the strangest thing, yeah. you know, and, and there, there's almost no Republican who you couldn't really do that same kind of look back at yeah, Sarah Sanders. Analysis, yeah. yeah. Sarah Sanders, who's a white woman, a governor of Arkansas, I think yeah, it is. Yeah. When she was born, women in Arkansas's condition was uh, horrendous, outrageously desperate and dire for most women you know, white women in Arkansas. And um, the changes brought by um, Roe v. Wade, birth control, ERA, and um, affirmative action transformed the lives of women. Transformed them. You know, women could not get their own checking account in the 70s, right? Mm -hmm. To women can be a vice president. That's the story. It's not the story against, oh, this is against me and it prevents, it, that, that's actually not the story. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And I don't know why more people don't do that analysis and not let people skate 
on these conversations. Right. Yeah, and I think politicians, we need to have that argument more. That was beautiful. Thank you. Uh, this week, I read uh, that billionaire, billionaire entrepreneur Mark Cuban, who's on TV and all that, said, call me woke. You don't need to call it DEI. You can call it whatever you want. I call it good business. And he went on to say, it means talking to the people that you're selling to and making sure your workforce looks like them and making sure you can reflect their values and being able to connect to that. That's what works for me. And, and I'm wondering, you know, you did bring up that this is a lot of rhetoric, right? And um, and I'm wondering how do we reclaim the narrative around woke and pu push back against the growing anti-LGBTQIA legislation and the anti-DEI efforts, et cetera? I know it's a big question, but mm -hmm. um, how do we push back against that narrative, against that rhetoric that's... Uh -huh. <laughs> I think that I love what Mark Cuban said, because I think from a business perspective that there's definitely value there. I mean, you know, you have these businesses just lurching um, and unclear what they're supposed to be doing. So what you're saying is, hey, I'm, I'm going to not care about a huge portion of the consumer, <laughs> uh, you know, group. And they're saying, oh, well, we're, well, what's interesting and what's odd is you can have one person complain about a book in Florida and get it banned. But millions of people can say that they don't think we should have weapons of mass destruction on the street and nothing happens. I mean, it's weird. So there definitely seems to be more weight given to people who dislike than people who like. So that means that people who are, are for things have to come together in very large numbers. They have to make their voices known. And I think we've been caught on our back foot Agreed. Um, I think there's been this incredibly well-organized, well-funded march that honestly has been going on since the last major piece of civil rights legislation in 68 was passed to undo everything that came out of that and, and movement. So this has been a long game effort that has been able to move swiftly because it was just waiting for its opportunity to get on the ground. And so I feel like one thing is that groups, people who believe in values of openness and empathy and connection have to come together in larger numbers. I mean, apparently it takes 3,000 of those who feel that way to go up against one person who dislikes something, apparently. Mm -hmm. And so um, they need to do that. I think in businesses have to be held account. I think in our work lives and even in our day-to-day -day lives, we have to use, you know, inquisitive conversation and open questioning techniques with people when they say these things to us to say, well, you know, first of all, can you tell me what do you mean by that? You know, or you can say, you know, here's the thing. I understand what I hear that you have this point of view, but to me, the alternative is being asleep and not knowing about other people or understanding where they're coming from. And that's not something I'm interested in, you know, or, um, you know, in the business setting, hey, our policies here are about inclusion and we are not going to create a hostile work environment, which could get us in legal trouble um, for people just calling in woke and, you know, um, using it as a stand in for hiring and uh, promotions. And, you know, we're not going to let you bully other people. What, what's interesting to me in the workplace is that there are all kinds of rules and regulations at work right? That you can't opt out of. There's a ton of them. Let's say you work somewhere that has safety regulars, like you got to follow them or you get mm -hmm. fired mm -hmm. because, you know, but somehow 
the the ideas around how we're going to work together, how we're going to respect each other, are optional. And I, I'm just I'm always confused about that. At why companies allow uh, the the smallest voice, and literally it could be in a company of 10,000, 10 people complain and they freak out and switch all their policies. And I, I'm just like, hmm, would you do that on safety regulations? I mean, I'm just so confused about that. And so I think. I think we have to push back by saying, I believe in empathetic understanding and openness and, and connection. And so I, I, and to me, anti-woke is anti-that. And I, I don't, I disagree with you. Um, or, you know, what, again, what do you mean looking at an art show? What's woke about it? Right. Well, it's all these people of color. So do you think black people or Hispanic people shouldn't be represented? I mean, I push people through their thought process um, on day to day, companies have to, I think, as Mark Cuban said, recognize, look, this is a diverse consumer workplace, uh, consumer marketplace that's getting more diverse, smaller, homogenous look. And you can't just say you're going to ignore uh, 50, well, actually now 60 percent of the consumer market. You just say, I'm just going to ignore them. You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to I'm not going to I'm just going to have this leave it to beaver vision of white male Christianity. And those are the only people who matter. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's wild, <laughs> you know, and it's not a good business strategy. Um, but I think what we have to do is present an alternative vision. I think we have to call it out. We have to call out the derogatory nature of, of it and, and, and call it a slur because it is a slur mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. It's just a cover for other slurs and say, hey, I, that's not that's not something I, I'm I'm not participating in that kind of derogatory conversation. If you want to talk to me specifically about what your problem is, but I'm not, I'm not. We have to take that power and we have to reclaim it. I don't want to. I don't want. And what bothers me and worries me is people who claim to believe in these principles are also adopting anti woke language. And I really, I, I just, it's super worrisome. Yeah. So on the personal level, how do we all stay woke? Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we stay woke by staying engaged. We stay woke by not getting defeated when things don't work. I mean, I think this is more of an issue for people for whom coming to these issues are new. I think people who got activated during George Floyd and then they were like, oh, I feel, I'm, I'm feeling reticent because of homeless issues or police issues or violence issues. This is the ebb and flow of life. Mm -hmm. And we can't say, you know, let me just say from my perspective, as a black person, I don't really have an option to opt out, right? right? right. It's my everyday life. Right. These are life and death matters for me. And so staying woke is the nature. And this is why maybe this, this, this philosophical concept comes from the black community. We have to stay awake. We cannot be sleeping because if we are sleeping, that means things could be happening around us that are really critical or dangerous right. to our life, right. right? And so I think one way to stay woke is to recognize this is a, a mission critical for your life, the lives of your children, the lives of our society to stay engaged. So we can stay woke by staying open, by continuing to build those empathetic bridges, um, by learning, by recognizing a setback or a pushback isn't shouldn't be the end of your journey. I think this happens to a lot of white people in particular when 
you know, they might encounter somebody says, oh, I don't like what you say that, or I feel what you're doing is racist. I can't be racist. I'm woke. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. look, we all live in this, this stew, this fog yes. of racist culture. Every one of us, all of us, black, Hispanic, white, Asian, we have, look at Peter Thiel. He's gay and he's funds anti-gay hateful initiatives. I mean, we all are in the stew, right? So be it's okay calm down you you may get called out about some issues i may get called out about some issues that's okay and that can lead to understanding just like anything else in life it's funny and this is the other thing i don't there are very few things we do in life where we expect we're gonna learn it be good at it never be questioned again right there's like nothing (laughs) i mean it takes i don't know how many years to learn to play piano or instrument or well, they say it takes a decade to learn your job really well. So there, but when it comes to race or gender or, or issues around LGBTQIA, there's this thing like, well, I thought I had it. Why? What, what in your life do you learn that fast? And then it's nothing else to know. I mean, I'm just unclear on why the expectation is that, that this knowledge should come without any difficulty or change or complexity you do get what i'm saying like there's nothing else we do that we expect that from but even in companies they're like we did diversity initiative why didn't everything change (laughs) are you shitting me 400 (laughs) years of policy practice and laws would change because of the afternoon training i'm just super confused and um it's the same in our personal lives you know I was at protests, I did this and that, and now people are accusing me because I didn't say they, them, and so now I hate all diversity. Like, seriously? Mm-hmm. What What else do you do that with? Nothing. Because this is so, get rid of this expectation of perfection in this process and this expectation that it's a one and done or that um, any pushback is, I'm just out, I'm gonna retreat back to the comfort of certainty of hatred, yeah, you know? Right. Um, continue to learn and push and be open and be okay with, you know, stumbling, you know, and learning. Because mm-hmm. it takes a decade to mm-hmm. learn a job, I would assume, especially if these things are new to you, especially if you never really considered them, it's gonna take you more than a year, more than a month, more than a book to understand what has been withheld from you. Which, which in fact you should have learned all your life, but you did not get to, you know? All right, that's wonderful, thank you. And um, I'm now at my last question. I'd like to ask this of all my guests, but um, so what books, films, ideas, thinkers are capturing your attention these days? Wow, um, well, there's a really good book. It's been out a while that I love um, called Minor Feelings and Asian American Reckoning by Kathy Park Hong. Excellent, excellent book. I, I just feel it's like one of the best books written in modern times about Asian experience in the United States, making the distinction about this very large group, how one woman sees race through the lens of her family and background. Um, and it's it's really, really good. Mm. Um, there is a book called Dying of Whiteness, and I don't know the author's name, but I, I listened to it on audiobook which is also really good about, uh, it's looking at two things, which is gun culture and healthcare mm-hmm. in the United States and the, the concept of whiteness and it's a, this to- requirement of total allegiance to it that how it harms white people. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really not through the lens of, of black people or Asian or Hispanic people, but really 
how is this allegiance to this idea harming white people around gun culture and healthcare? And one really interesting quote from that book was um, he was having a conversation with a guy about Obamacare when it first came out, which derogatorily was called Obamacare, which if you go all the way back to the 90s, the Affordable Care Act looks just like the elements of the program that conservatives wanted then, but we never talked about that. But um, anyway, this man said he'd rather die than receive support from Obama or Obamacare, and he died. (laughs) So, I mean, when whiteness as a concept is more valuable than your life it's it's interesting so that that is a a really interesting book um there's a book uh that i was reading about a story that i didn't even know called master slave husband wife about a uh a husband and wife who escaped from slavery um, during during slavery. And the wife was very light-skinned and she masqueraded as a white man uh, for them to escape. And it's just such a, a master slave husband wife is such a fascinating uh, story. And it seems like something we could have learned in history. It seems like we could have had a movie about it already. It's like really daring escape and and you know that kind of thing. And then there's Myth America which is about the myths that we tell, uh, which is really, really interesting. Um, And it covers, uh, again, while it is not squarely about race, it covers some of these myths that I I was talking about. You know, some of the the ways in which we think about um, ourselves and it covers, um, let's see here, it talks about founding myths, um, the myths that uh, Native Americans have vanished talks about the myth of socialism, the myth of the magic of the marketplace, the myth of Confederate monuments, which is, you know, this, this myth that they're there to honor the Civil War when, when in fact, most of them uh, came about in the 60s and after after Reconstruction Mm -hmm. um, as a way to terrorize Black people. Like, that's actually what what they, why they were there and that's what they've been doing the whole time. Um, So anyway, those are a couple of things that I've that's a wonderful list. And um, one more question. Oh, and one more, <laughs> yeah. one more, sorry. Just Action. I just got this mm-hmm. book called Just Action. It's how to challenge segregation enacted under the color of law. So this is an action book by Richard Rothstein and his daughter, Leah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Richard Rothstein has a really great little video on segregated by design is the name of the video. And if you ever want to know why we don't live next to each other. Why black people don't have historical wealth segregated by design is like a 17 minute video. You can find it. Um, but I'm interested to read this book because it's about action. So we'll see, we'll see what they say. Wonderful. Um, last, this is actually the last question. How do people find you if they want to, you know, reach out or work? Yeah. Yeah. You? So I, I have a website. It's I T B O M. So I as in inside T is in Tom, B is a boy, O is in Edward M I T B O M training and consulting.com. So that's, um, so I T B O M training and consulting.com is my website and a lot of information about me, my book, um, all that ITBOM training and consulting.com. Or they can email my admin, admin at the T H E Sherry S H A R I 
done, D-U-N-N.com. So admin at the Sherry, S-H-A-R-I, D-U-N-N.com. And Michelle was wonderful in setting all this up. So <laughs> yeah. And they can learn more um, on ITBOM and training and consulting.com about the book, uh, you know, sign up for um, information about that and any other writings that I do on Medium or I'm thinking about doing a Substack. So we'll see about how that goes in, in conjunction with writing the book. Um, so yeah. Great. Um, Sherry, thank you. And I'd love to have you back when the book comes out too. So, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah. be excited for that. And I just want to say thank you again for all of this and, uh, making the time very much appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Always interested in talking, as you can tell, I love to talk. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Sherry. Thank you. All right. That's our show. Uh, please, uh, share, share around with all, Anybody you might know that could really use uh, or learn from this message from Sherry today, um, I think it's a very important one. Please share it around. Um, and um, come find us on social media, as always, at The Radical Therapist on Instagram or The Radical Therapist on Facebook. And um, you can also reach out to me if you have any questions, comments, or even guest suggestions at theradicaltherapist at gmail.com would be happy to hear from you. And just a reminder, if you made it this far, we are still looking for contributors to the Radical, uh, the Encyclopedia of Radical Helping that will be published by Thick Press next year. If you want to be a part of this amazing project, please uh, look for Thick Press on the Medium site. It'll show you some of the contributions or uh, they were kind of entries that we're looking for that haven't been taken or haven't been done yet. So if you'd like to participate, or even if you have your own ideas or your own things, these things that you're doing, please don't hesitate to reach out to us, um, either Aaron at Thick Press or me, or go find Thick Press on Medium and it'll have all the details. So. Um, yeah, come find us. And as always, you know, thanks for listening. Peace.